The Social History Hub podcast is brought to you by Creative Podcasts. Hello, I'm Lainey Malkani and welcome to the Social History Hub podcast. Every week I'll be exploring the nature of social history and what it means to us today with an exciting lineup of artists, entrepreneurs, academics and writers. They'll share their stories and relive the moments and events that inspired them. Coming up, stories from Voices Past with writer Jamie Rhodes. After the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, so many healthy young men were killed that the whole dentures market, if you like, became flooded with Waterloo teeth. Um, and I thought, you know, London's dentists aren't going to pull the teeth, but who is? More to come from Jamie in a moment. But first, what's his story? Well, he studied philosophy at university and after graduating, created the Homeless Film Festival in Nottingham, taught screenwriting at the homeless charity St Mungo's in London, set up his own film business and at the same time pursued his passion for writing. Then he came across the British Library Archives and the seed of an idea to write a collection of short stories using the archive as inspiration. Months later, following support from the Arts Council, Writers' Development Agency Spread the Word and the Writers' Guild, he published Dead Men's Teeth. I'll let Jamie tell you more. There's an advert from a dentist in the early 1800s. At that time, the aristocracy were eating a lot more sugar, so their teeth were quite bad. They needed false teeth often. You know, they tried horse teeth or uh, porcelain teeth, wooden teeth... But the, real, the best thing is real human teeth to make dentures out of and at that time. And so um, the, uh, the poor people would sometimes sell their teeth to the dentist because uh, they tended to not be eating as much sugar, so their teeth were a lot better. But then the other source of uh, teeth for these dentists was battlefields. And so after the Battle of Waterloo in 1815, so many healthy young men were killed that the whole dentures market, if you like, became flooded with Waterloo teeth. And so um, all the lords and ladies would be eating these expensive meats and things with the teeth of, like, a young ploughboy who'd been cut down in his prime <laughs> but happened to have brilliant teeth. Um, and I thought, you know, London's dentists aren't going to pull the teeth, but who is? Somebody's getting the teeth from the battlefield to the dentists. And so I invented a story whereby a young woman is recruited to go and pull teeth and so that seed of a document inspired me to then just take this imaginary journey of what may have happened. It's a really fascinating story and it's, it, it paints so many amazing pictures, some quite gruesome, obviously, given the subject matter. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But one of my favourites is Quarantine. Tell me about yeah. that. Um, so Quarantine, uh, that's inspired by a ship's surgeon report from 1880. And uh, this ship's surgeon was aboard a vessel transporting indentured labour workers from Calcutta to Suriname uh, and there was an outbreak of cholera on the way and um, and the ship was quarantined outside Suriname and wasn't allowed to dock uh, until the disease had run its course. Either everyone had died or it was no longer infecting the ship. I wanted to use that image of this ship in quarantine and that document to create a fiction tale so I exaggerated things like they were only quarantined for three weeks which is bad enough but you know it's not that dramatic so I made it like three months and I made rather than just a few people die you know, everybody dies <laughs> there's a risk of that anyway um, and it's amazing to get the document out of the library and look at the handwriting sometimes it wobbles as you imagine the ship swaying and the, the pages smell of like wood smoke 
uh, maybe he's smoking a pipe or something. And this is such a real human connection with this document, but all you're getting is the facts. So by imbuing that those facts with a little bit of drama and creativity, you're sort of giving a bit more of a means of a, a human connection. So you feel a little bit of drama about what that person may have been going through, and that's the power of arts to be able to do that to these academic documents. The stories are incredible, but you have to remind yourself all the way through that you're reading it that this is fiction. Does it fit into history and social history in particular? Yeah, the stories are all about ordinary people and the sort of interactions they had with uh, each other and other cultures, the situations they were put in or got themselves into. So I think it does fit in that sense. But then because it's a creative piece, um, you know, my imagination and voice as a writer has to come through as well. And so some of some of the stories in the collection are really sort of outlandish and fantastical because they're about uh, the mind. And in particular, one is about Ignatius Sancho. Now, that's the one I was going to I was <laughs> going to mention as well, because that is really fantastical. The British Library earlier this year managed to get all of Ignatius Sancho's original letters and is a really fascinating man and so it was hard to pick one particular aspect to create a story around but one of the letters he's writing as there's riots going on outside his shop he was the first black man in England to own property and have the right to vote because he was a former slave and then lived as a free man in London didn't he? Yeah he he was the first uh, a first former slave to, to own property and and so his shop was in Mayfair quite near to where there's a lot of important uh, influential politicians and things and so these riots were going on outside his shop and he's writing this letter and just writing to his friend and writing about what he can see outside his window and so I wanted to use the fact that he had newly acquired this shop and was seeing these riots outside his situation in London being a, a, a black man with the vote at a time when and with a, with property at a time when a lot of people's lives they were living in absolute poverty and degradation, uh, he would inevitably have some sort of fear while these riots were going on that he would be targeted by the mob. Um, and also, his shop was selling slave goods, and as a former slave, he found this really difficult. Uh, but they were the only means; they were the most popular things. So, tobacco and rum and sugar and all this sort of stuff that he found the slave trade absolutely abhorrent, but that was his means of making income and his means of continuing to run this shop. So in the story that I created, I wanted to explore his worries and his guilt and his ambitions because the thing that he felt by doing, uh, by selling these goods and having this shop was that all the influential politicians would stop by to buy their tobacco and things and he would strike up conversations and he was a very well-educated man and so he was helping to break the stigma by talking to these people who could perhaps bring about the abolition of slavery and so so he would kind of sort of give them a nudge if you like um so he had to continue on this this route but the I didn't want to get really heavy and bogged down in the, the slavery aspect of it. I wanted to explore this man as an individual and his worries and his guilts and his fears and his uh, ambitions. And so I created a completely imaginary story about him. Uh, it just takes place in his own mind. <laughs> and uh, it, it's very odd, if you like. It's not remotely a, a 
you, you couldn't link it to a real world. It's just an imaginary world. But the seed is the same of, you know, it's still a historical, factual seed. You see, I think that stories that you can find in Dead Men's Teeth show the importance of writing things down no matter how insignificant you think they are because in years to come technology now it could be even weeks to come these become valuable archive of a particular moment in time do you feel that yeah because where we are as a society and as a species is reflected mostly in the lives of ordinary people by engaging with those lives through the written word you're able to form a a better, more rounded opinion on our place in this world and how we're functioning as, as a society, as a culture and as a species generally. In this social history context, do you feel a sense of responsibility? I think uh, all responsible to make some sort of historical record of what's going on and for, for future generations to see a, ca- a snapshot of our, our time. But in this book, because I've used historical sources, I've tried to make what's going on now relevant to what's gone on in the past and so on the surface there's stories that are historical fiction and some quite bizarre and some macabre but they all have some sort of comment to make on today's society. So what what does social history mean to you? So social history is a way of capturing the day-to-day lives of ordinary people. To me that's far more interesting and important uh, than what's normally captured being politicians or you know, the people of prominence, because their lives will always have some sort of coverage, but what's going under the radar is far more interesting, to me anyway. And do you have any kind of, any stories or any thoughts or experiences that has impacted on you? Um, Sorry, I do have a tendency to ask big questions, (laughs) but you, you know, you did do philosophy, so I think you're (laughs) well-versed in answering them. (laughs) Yeah, uh, it's hard to do these things off the cuff. Normally I would... pause an essay on it but uh, <laughs> but yeah so something that's really influenced my work and my approach to storytelling is my granddad who sadly passed away when I was quite young but he was from a gypsy family and during World War Two, he was evacuated from the uh, some wasteland where they were staying in a city centre uh, to live in the countryside in this village called Haworth the Bronte, where the Bronte sisters are from but his family never went back for him after the war and I just thought that's fascinating how different my life would have been if his family had gone back for him or if he'd found his family again Um, and so he was just raised in this village but because he died when I was quite young I never really had a chance to ask him about anything he continues to be a real influence I find passing on those stories is so important because they just get lost otherwise as a writer I feel like I need to, uh, to do that make sure that these interesting facets of our past don't disappear, which is another one of my passions being folklore. For people who wouldn't create documents that, like written documents anyway, tales that we tell each other throughout history then become folklore, like you know, you don't go into a particular part of the woods at night because there's fairies there or whatever. But you know, that the, the meaning behind that isn't about the fairies or anything, it's about looking after each other. And So I think that's very relevant. Jamie, it's been really fascinating talking to you. But I would like to ask you if you would read an extract for us. Yeah, sure. So this is an extract from one of the stories in the collection called Death or Australia. Now, it's called that because um, when convicts were being transported to Australia, they would be offered the option of either being put to death or 
they would be transported to Australia and sometimes they would choose death <laughs> because Australia had such a reputation um, in London at the time. Um, and so this story is about two brothers who are criminals and they're on the first fleet uh, being dropped off in Australia. And in this particular excerpt, uh, they've just heard the get, they're in the jail in the hull of the ship and they've just heard cheering above deck so we know that land has been sighted. I prayed that one of the drunken guards would fall over our way. They were both young men, but the older of the two was looking most likely to fall. Pink with sunburn, drunk and exhausted, the lad was not in his best health. I kicked John again to make sure he was ready and not dozing. He frowned at me angrily. Of course he was ready. If we escaped this time, we would surely be in sight of the coast, and all of the crew and soldiers would be distracted and drunk. We could easily lower the rowing boats and disappear into the night. With a bit of luck, we'd be free to make a new life in this unknown land. There would be women convicts on some of the ships, and John and I had fantasised all voyage about running away and starting families with a couple of wide-hipped, street-hard women. Then our moment came. The young guard stumbled as he swayed and fell against our cage. As easy and natural as breathing, John reacted, reached through the bars and picked the lad's pocket. The lad did not even notice as he stood up straight again, mumbling embarrassed apologies to the other guard. Down the inside of my trouser leg, I kept a sharp wooden splinter, like a stiletto, that I'd pulled from one of the wooden floorboards in our cage. Not being a large man like John, my splinter kept me safe and ready for violence. John and I stood up. I didn't have to tell him my plan. Having shared a jail, a home, a childhood, a crib and a womb, we were almost of one mind. With a look to the other convicts in our cage, they knew what was afoot and began to uncurl from their sitting positions. The guards didn't notice until it was too late. In a flash, John unlocked the cage and flung the door open. Before the guards could shout out or draw their weapons, I had my stiletto through the throat of one and John cracked the other's skull against the metal bars of our cage. The two lads crumpled to the floor in a heap. John and I took the single-shot muskets from the dead guards and before anyone else could get hold of them, and then used the keys to unlock the rest of the cages. Soon there were well over a hundred convicts roaming freely and excitedly around the hold. True to typical criminal nature, they opened the hatches and went on the attack, shouting and swearing in one disorganised rabble. We did not. We remained behind. With the hold empty and chaos raging above our heads, we calmly stripped the dead guards and put on their uniforms. We put our ragged convict clothes on the corpses and dragged them into one of the jails. Anyone who found them would simply assume there were two convicts killed in a jail fight. Looking like any other redcoats, we peeped through the open hatch at the chaos above. Convicts and redcoats fought in lumps all around the deck. It seemed that the convicts had the upper hand, but the redcoats were armed and they would quickly regain control. We had to act fast, and so leapt clumsily onto the deck with our muskets primed. The air above was cool and fresh, with a hint of gunpowder smoke but we did not have time to enjoy it. Behaving as our new uniforms required, we discharged our rifles at two ragged convicts and then hurried to the rowing boats. I kept a lookout whilst John lowered the smallest boat into the water. Nobody watched us. They were all too busy fighting and dying. The boat landed in the black water with a splash. We lowered ourselves over the side of the ship and dropped down after her. Once sat securely, we took an oar each and rowed for our lives, away from the huge transportation bark and into the darkness. Jamie Rhodes, thank you very much. Thank you.
That was Jamie Rhodes, author of Dead Men's Teeth. Next week on the Social History Hub podcast, I'll be talking to Burrett Mehta, Chief Executive of Trust for London, a charity that helps to reduce poverty and inequality. We'll discuss whether social history can exist without the generosity of others. That's next week on the Social History Hub podcast. Join us if you can. You've been listening to the Social History Hub podcast. You can listen again to our podcast at socialhistoryhub.com or download each programme from our website, from our RSS feed or from iTunes. And if you have a story to tell, why not drop me an email? Laney at socialhistoryhub.com. Social History Hub podcast was brought to you by Creative Podcasts.